Sometimes it's moments of brokenness which create the greatest transformations. Times where fear gives birth to faith, pain leads to healing, and chaos dissolves into peace. It's in these times we often see God more clearly. For in our deepest turmoil, He remains faithful. When our spirit is crushed, He remains strong. When our moment is too heavy, He carries the burden. As gold is refined by fire, we too are often refined by struggle. It's part of growing, changing, becoming. Lately, the journey has been difficult. Our breath has been labored. Our steps uneasy. But we stand in faith knowing who is leading us through this desert. The God of peace, the God of hope, the God of restoration. Okay, we continue our series in Joel, and I hope there's one verse that stood out for you. The stench of their rotting bodies will rise over the land. My goodness, what do we do with stuff like that? Well, that won't be this sermon. That's for another time. We did talk about it in footnotes a little bit before the service. Um, how do we understand this, uh, the way that Joel understands God, you know, bringing the plague on and then God removing the plague? And all of that in the Old Testament is a little bit puzzling to us at times. This celebration of the stench of rotting bodies is not something that we see post-Jesus. I just want to put that out there. And so however we understand it and the way that I wrestle with it, and I think we do need to wrestle with images of conquest and violence and all that in the Old Testament scriptures, we have to be honest with that. We even have to be honest sometimes just saying, I don't get it. It's, it's tough for me. I struggle with it. But whenever I come across that, I run to Jesus. Now, I don't think that's a cop-out. I think that's actually what we're meant to do, is that all of these things are meant to point us somehow to Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the perfect reflection of God's character and nature, will and desire, and we don't find him rejoicing over the stench of rotting bodies. I just want to put that out there as we start uh, today and as we go through this, uh, Joel, because there's so many beautiful things in Joel that I think we can hold on to that uh, we don't really need to get sidetracked in that. And maybe we need to have a separate conversation around some of those things another time. Joel's heart, though, is what we want to hear this morning. And Joel's heart is to rouse Judah from her spiritual complacency, to shake them up. And Joel does this by, first of all, saying, remember that plague of locusts? That was awful, wasn't it? Well, there's something worse coming if you keep going in the direction you're going. Pay attention now. Pay attention while you still have time. Repent. Return to God. Come back home before it's too late. But he wants to rouse them from their spiritual complacency, stirring them to repent and pointing them toward a future day of the Lord that both has judgment and blessing to come. 
I think that's a message that we can get a hold of today as well in the church in Canada, in the church in Calgary, at Bonavista Baptist Church. We can get a hold of this message of being stirred from spiritual complacency because I think that is our greatest challenge. Another word for that is apathy. I do not think in Canada that we are the persecuted church. I've heard people talking about how we're so persecuted, how we're so restricted, how the world is coming against us. And I know maybe there's coming a day where that will happen, but it's not now. I've been to places where I've seen the persecuted church for reals, and this is not it. We still have an amazing amount of freedom and opportunity to be in this space. Our challenge isn't persecution, it's apathy. It's becoming so comfortable in our security that we won't take the risk to reach out to our neighbors. I'm not saying that's happening right here, right now, but that's the challenge. That's the temptation. And I'm saying that because I find that in my own heart. I think one of the greatest values that we have as the church in North America and in Canada is the value of normalcy, (laughs) the value of security, the value of safety, And it's wonderful to be part of a congregation that has those kind of roots and capacities to be safe and secure. And yet it could be one of our greatest challenges too, because sometimes it keeps us from taking the necessary risks. Being part of the kingdom of God is a risky thing. Jesus took a huge risk in that sense, from a human perspective, in coming among us and going to the cross. And he expects us to do the same. So Joel is stirring the people up, saying, pay attention, because that's what a national tragedy, a calamity does, right? When we hear something that comes close at hand, even the, the fires that were here in Alberta and still are in some of those communities, it suddenly shakes us awake. We can't be complacent. We can't be apathetic. We have to take action. We have to do something. And so Joel is saying, this natural disaster that's come upon you is a reminder that you must take action. And that's true of the church today as well. We must take action. And so that's what Joel's heart is. Well, today we look at one of the great themes in Joel, and it's the theme of restoration. So he's given a warning, the day of the Lord kind of language. Look out, it's coming down, and at the head of the army is God himself. And he's not coming against Egypt this time. He's coming because he's got a bone to pick with you, right? You've gone from being oppressed people to becoming the oppressors. And now God has something to say about it. And he's going to hold you to account. And so this God, God is coming in and Joel warns them. But then he calls out. But it's not an inevitable fact that you'll be judged. God is saying, return, repent, come home. There's still time. And then Joel offers kind of the carrot end instead of the stick, right? He says, and if you return home, there'll be a time of renewal and restoration that you can look forward to. Restoration, if we define it in dictionary terms, just simple terms, is bringing back to a former position or condition. That's important, both those things. It's not just about bringing back to a former condition, bringing back to a former position. And that's true in Joel. He says, return home, come back to your former position, which is with me. But he also does say, to return things to its former state is the goal of God in the book of Joel. 
to return things to the former condition. And we'll read that as we go through. So this theme of restoration is all throughout Scripture. We were talking about that in our footnotes class, and uh, one of the participants pointed out that it's right through Scripture. I think it was Robert Staples, but I won't say his name out loud. And uh, it's always good. Like the people in, in footnotes, when you come out, there's so much wisdom and learning and understanding in the room. I just love it because I, I learn a lot from being part of it. And this idea of restoration goes from Genesis right through to Revelation, when we have this hope of the renewed earth, this idea of a new heavens and a new earth, and we hold on to that hope. And it's all throughout Scripture. We can see it in Job's life, in the book of Job, that story where Job loses everything. But at the end, what does it say in Job 42? And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Or think of David after he had sinned and committed that awful offense, the rape of Bathsheba. In Psalm 51, he longs for restoration. He says to God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Have you ever longed for that in your heart when you just feel that you've become distant from God? God, restore me. Bring me back to original. Bring me back that sense of joy in knowing you and the joy in your salvation. But we see it not only in the Old Testament, we see it in the early church as well. In 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, Peter says this to a church that was facing persecution. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And we see a pattern developing here, that after a time of suffering, God often promises a time of restoration. And maybe that will give us hope as we meet today. And then there's this future promise in Acts chapter 3, speaking about Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. There's a time coming when we believe that God will set things right. That's our ultimate hope. And there's a time of restoration coming. Well, whenever I think about restoration, I think about some of the shows on Netflix that Christine and I like to watch. We love to watch old car shows. Do you ever watch those, those restoration shows? I won't mention any in case it seems like advertising, and some of them might not be as wholesome as they should be, but anyway, I just love to see that. And what I love to see in those restoration shows is the before and after pics. That's what we wait for, right? If we all just saw the before pics, it wouldn't be very interesting. But it's the after pics. You go, whoa, how is that possible? Because they start with this, just this heap of, of rusty metal that if I had walked by it, I, I would have said, get that thing out of here. I don't see any purpose in it. And yet somebody has the vision and the money and the time to bring it back to life, to bring it back to new, to restore its condition. And it's amazing, it's transformative. I just, maybe it's because I'm in the gospel business that I, whenever I see restoration happening somewhere else, I'm like, look, it's there too. That's the way it works. Why do they do that? Well, they do it because they see value in that hunk of rusting metal. Value that maybe others wouldn't even see. And because they see value in it, then it's worth their time and effort and energy to restore it. I haven't had the opportunity to restore a car. I also don't have the money or the skill to do so. 
But uh, last year, just before Christmas, uh, my daughter Triona came to me with a project. She said her boyfriend has a coffee table and it's ugly. That's typical Triona, just tell it like it is. And it's ugly. And when I saw the coffee table, I had to agree with her. It was ugly. And it's just one of those old coffee tables. You might find it in, you know, I don't know, the thrift store somewhere. It's got that old kind of classic brown orange, kind of like some of the, well, I won't point anywhere in here, but kind of like that classic brown orange stuff that doesn't really go with anything anymore. And so, and it was damaged. It was kind of beat up and it was, there was nicks out of it and one of the legs was wobbly and some kid had drawn all around the outside of it. And Trino said, it was his grandma's and I want to restore it for him. And I said, honey, just buy a new one. Like, honestly, it's just not worth it. But I decided, I agreed, so she brought it to the garage and we looked at it and we started to look. And I realized, first of all, it was made of solid wood. It was, it wasn't, it, this wasn't Ikea furniture, right? Not too many people restore Ikea furniture that I know of, right? So this is a solid wood. And then we turned over and we found a label. I should have brought a picture. And on the label was this furniture manufacturer. So I looked it up. And apparently, this table is 60 years old and was made by a very reputable furniture manufacturer, at which point I said, you should sell this and get some money because it's going for good coin. Uh, but she said, no, it has sentimental value to Skylar, and also, I think it has real intrinsic value. And so we took it apart, we sanded it down, we took it down to its natural wood, and we stained it, but not the brown orange. It was kind of this espresso finish. And we put lights underneath it so that it glows in the dark. But anyway, <clears throat> it was kind of a cool project. And it was a lot of fun. Why did we bother to restore it? Because even before it was shiny again, it had value. That's my point. It had value. It had sentimental value to Triona's boyfriend and her whole family. But it also, we found it had this kind of intrinsic value that was part of it. And we're like, this is worth spending some time on. We are restoring this. And that's what I want you to take away from in this message today. The reason that God is so interested in restoration is because he sees us as having value. If he didn't value Judah, he would have just let them go and started over with someone else. If he didn't value you and me, why would he send Jesus? But the important thing is this. He doesn't value us just in our cleaned up state because we're never there, right? I don't know about you, but I'm not there. He values us in the state and condition in which he finds us all chipped and broken and sometimes ugly, right? And I'm talking internal ugliness. And so God values us. His heart is for us. And so he restores us. That's his goal. We find that. We find this comprehensive restoration plan in Joel chapter 2 that was read for us. In verse 22, we find that God is interested in environmental restoration. This is amazing as we read it in the Old Testament over and over again. Restoration doesn't just impact an individual. It impacts a community. Not just a community, but the environment in which they live. And so Joel 2 and verse 22 uh, Joel says, don't be afraid, you animals of the field, for the wilderness pastures will soon be green. The trees will again be filled with fruit. Fig trees and grapevines will be loaded down once more. There's this amazing concern 
for the natural order of things, even throughout the Old Testament. And there's this kind of environmental restoration that is promised in Joel, that he will even take care, God will take care of the animals. Why? Because creation is good. And we never should forget that. When God was creating the world, it says in Genesis 1 and 2, what did he say over and over again? It's good, it's good, it's good. And he's never rescinded that sense of goodness from the created order. And no matter what we do to scar and mar the land and, and take over resources that really shouldn't be ours sometimes, and in our greed, overproduce or do whatever we do that causes some environmental calamities, even in the midst of that, God said, it's still good. It's still worth restoring. We also see in verse 24 that God promises to them the restoration of material possessions. The threshing floors will again be piled high with grain, and the presses will overflow with new wine and olive oil. Yay! (laughs) And so all those in the first passage, it said, Awake, you drunkards, we're out of wine. And now it's like, hey, the wine's flowing again. Uh, Don't get drunk with it, but, you know, there's a celebration here. This restoration of the material possessions of the community is important to God. Why? Because he values our physical needs. That's important. When we pray, God, I'm, I'm hurting today. My back is in pain. These kind of things. I, God, I need today. We had several people come by the office uh, this week, and Carolina was part of that too. The people who come in saying, I'm hungry. Can, can you provide food? And, and we respond to that. Why? Because God cares about our physical needs. And so there's this restoration of material things. But then there's also the restoration of spiritual things in verse 26 and 27. Once again, you will have all the food you want, and you will praise the Lord your God who does these miracles for you. Never again will my people be disgraced or ashamed. Then you will know that I am among my people Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. Never again will my people be disgraced. Part of the spiritual blessing that God promises to Judah in this place is the removal of their shame. Shame is what often keeps us from God. Shame is what often keeps us from returning home. Shame is what what keeps us in the dark, keeps us in hiding. That's what happened with Adam and Eve, right? They did something that was against God's plan and they were ashamed. And so part of God's restoration plan is to remove our shame because that just perpetuates the sin cycle, the cycle that goes down and spirals to destruction when we're constantly ashamed or made to feel ashamed because of something that we've done. And God says, no, I'm removing your shame. And so there's this spiritual restoration. So you see this comprehensive plan, just as comprehensive as the locusts devoured everything, there is this comprehensive plan of God for the restoration of all things. And we get to be part of that. And that's part of the lesson today, that whenever we work toward the restoration of these things, we align ourselves with God and we express his heart. Whenever we're engaged in environmental restoration, we come close to the heart of God. I think some of you out in your gardens, I'd love to do this more, uh, but I seem to have different colored thumbs, not 
green thumbs for sure. I love the garden. I love walking in the garden. I love seeing the garden. I think our gardeners remind us of the potential of the earth around us and the beauty that God has called us to in cultivating the earth in an appropriate way. And when we engage in these activities, we're engaging with the heart of God. When we work to restore the material possessions of others, we're also working in line with the heart of God. And we have to do that in wise ways and careful ways, or maybe not. Maybe sometimes we just need to take a risk for those ways in which people have been maybe robbed of their possessions or have lost their possessions, or maybe they've made bad choices. It doesn't matter, but we're involved in restoring the material possessions of others. It matters. It matters to God. And when we're involved in spiritual restoration, the removal of shame so that people can find free and clear access to God and his people, we're aligned with the heart of God. Well, there's one final thing that I'll say about this, and it's a personal lesson I think that we can grab from all of this text today. The personal lesson is this, that God has an amazing ability to make up for lost time. That's the key verse that's in here. Uh, Joel says that he will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Now, the locusts didn't eat time. The locusts didn't eat a bunch of clocks, right? What did they eat? They ate everything else. They ate all the grain. They ate all the seed. But what it meant is that for years, probably three or four years, there was a problem with sowing the land, with, with putting out the seed, with tilling the soil. There was no produce. They lost time because of the calamity. And the promise is this, that God will restore that lost time, restore those wasted years. And I think for you and me, there's a personal lesson here, that God has an amazing ability to make up for our wasted years, our lost time. I think some of us have lost time perhaps because of pain or sorrow or health that wasn't so good and we feel like we lost out in some good years, in some good days. And yet there is a promise here underlying all of this restoration theme that God can make our time up to us in that sense. There's also lost time as I look back on my life, even as I joke about it in late high school and some of the things I got up to, but, but those decisions actually meant that I lost some years in that. I lost some time. And I think you can look back to decisions that we've made that have been hurtful to ourselves or others that have caused us to lose time, to waste some time. And there's sometimes uh, time that's stolen from us by others, perhaps those who have been in unhealthy relationships or other instances where we feel that circumstances beyond our control have stolen time, have robbed us of years. There's an amazing promise of restoration here, a promise that God will restore to us too the years that the locusts have eaten. I don't know what that looks like in our lives. Maybe we won't see it in this time. Maybe we'll only see it in eternity, but that's the promise. But the bottom line is this. God considers your restoration, my restoration, worthwhile because we are valuable to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you saw the value in us even when sometimes we feel worthless, either because of our actions or the actions of others upon us. 
because of our circumstances, because of our bad decisions, or even good decisions that went bad. We sometimes land in a, a feeling of worthlessness. But you never see us that way. You always see this amazing value, so much so that you sent your son Jesus. Help us to see that value in others around us, even as we walk in our families and in our neighborhoods, around the streets of Calgary. Help us to see one another with different eyes, with the eye of the restorer, <laughs> with the eye to restoration. And by your spirit, help us to participate in your restoration story today. In Jesus' name, amen.